Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Guess who all else is reading that late night credit crunch stuff? Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Chief European Credit Strategist Mahesh Bimalingam and Amelia Pollard, our reporter with Bloomberg News, uh, join us in Zoom and in studio. If Paul Sweeney was here, he'd give you guys a gold star, uh, at least you, Amelia, for, for coming in in studio. So we thank you both. Let's start with you, Amelia. Talk to us about uh, the story. Just how dire is it? Or is this something that's kind of fading when you talk about just the credit crunch narrative? Yeah, thanks for having me. That really remains to be seen. But in the last 24 hours, there were at least seven major bankruptcies. And we're still trying to get a sense of, you know, is that the most in you know a 24-hour time span? And it seems to be the case that um, it's the most within that short amount of time. Ever? So we think ever. I mean, we're still, we're still crunching the numbers right now. But I think that this this sort of thing really signals that maybe this is the beginning of potentially a big wave and the thing that we're seeing right now so some of the some of the companies that filed in the last 24 hours they're what known as a zombie companies like they really shouldn't have maybe even last this long so we're starting to see some of the unhealthier companies start to file now but the real question will be later this year will there be healthier companies that no one saw coming starting to file so i think that's what experts are looking for Mahesh, I'm wondering if you can talk about the European side of this because Europe is no stranger to zombie companies. And so at what point do you see this credit crunch start to bring some of these companies over the edge? Uh, Hi, guys. Uh, Thank you for having me over. The thing is, there's a bit of a contrast between the U.S. and Europe. I mean, even traditionally, right? Uh, In the U.S., it is pretty easy for many companies to come to the bond markets, borrow, and then go to Delaware when needed, right? It is not that easy one to come to the bond markets in Europe uh, because generally some of the smaller riskier ones are probably funded out of bank balance sheets. Uh, The bond markets are not as large and as free flowing as in the US, that's part one. And part two, you don't go to Delaware. Here, given that how fragmented the legal uh, framework is, companies generally don't go bankrupt that easily. So you tend not to see as many defaults, uh, except in the you know 2002-2003 tech crisis. Uh, but after that, you you can see that in every peak, the eurozone default rate tends to be much smaller. Uh, so right now, if you ask me that question, have we seen any dominoes falling? I mean, this year we've only seen two companies in the bond markets head to default. One company is uh, Foodco Bondco, and the other is Frigo Glass. Both are, you know, non-coupon payment and small companies. You know, one of them is 330 million and the other is 350 million. So have we seen like a flood? No. It's interesting because we're sitting there, we were talking a little earlier about Merger Monday and part of Merger Monday has been a lot of these big traditional private asset managers buying other credit firms. The idea here was with the banking crisis that some of these private credit firms could fill in the void. But you're seeing some of these firms have actually been exposed to some of these bankrupt companies, weren't they? You're seeing TPG had some exposure, what, to to Vice Media. Does that kind of make them nervous to step in further when they're seeing so much trouble here among some of these companies that have clearly fallen to bankruptcy? Yeah, you know, I think that it's all an equation here of, you know, how many how many companies will you have exposure to that might go belly up? And so I think that, you know, I'm not sure the case for TPG, but other private credit firms might see, you know, this is just the cost of doing business right now, you know, in this kind of risky environment. Firms will go bankrupt. Yeah, firms will go bankrupt. I think the bet is hopefully enough don't to make the, you know, the investment worth it. Um, I do think that 
I, I wanted to say earlier that right now we're seeing the the fastest pace of filing since 2009. And if that ramps up to, you know, kind of match 2009 or even really push push even higher, then that might be a problem for companies where, you know, the ratio is just so great that maybe we'll see private lenders pull back. But so far, all we're seeing is that they're pushing further into um, the investments. Mahesh, let's put some numbers on this here. Uh, we know you're a European credit strategist, but of course, I'm sure you're watching the markets around the world. One of the big kind of complaints when it comes to credit, or at least the lack thereof of, of, a, of a visible crunch, is that, hey, look, spreads, yields, are not at these recessionary levels of previous crunches. Uh, and I think you can say that on both sides of the Atlantic. What numbers, what levels are you waiting for to say, okay, guys, this is it. This is that dramatic drop that we were all ready for. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you, you're asking about market pricing. So let's talk about that. So we we track what is the stress ratio and what is the distress ratio in the bond markets, because you know you go you go you have the pricing for the, the entire universe of the index. And if you look at that, the stress ratio is about twelve and a half percent. When I say stress, it is price under eighty. And if you look at distress, price under 60, it is only 4%. So you will get defaults only from those 4% basically. And if you look at historically, you know, if you look at distress ratio and year before, how much do, how many of them actually default are probably about one third, one fourth. I really can't see an index default rate more than one, one and a half percent here in Euro bond markets bond markets, let's be very specific. It could be on bank balance sheet, yes, which is why if you look at the ECB lending standards, very tight, uh, similar, not as bad as the Fed loan officer survey. The Fed loan officer survey is showing, you know, 46% of all banks have tightened their standards for next quarter. The Eurozone one is at around, if I'm not wrong, uh, 20, mm-hmm. 27 but you you can also look at financial conditions right if you look at financial conditions in europe it is as tight as in the eurozone crisis four and a half standard deviations tight the only period in entire european history that things have been tighter is in the great financial crisis yes financial conditions are tight but mm-hmm. i we don't have enough candidates you know we've actually right. gone we've actually gone uh, name by name and I can only see four dodgy credits, which are probably the next dominoes to fall. And the four of them account for about 5.2 billion. Two mm-hmm. big credits there, Casino so, and, Ad- and Adla. So the speaking, other two are small. Speaking of things to look ahead for, uh, in about a minute here, Amelia, you know, we're looking at uh, a host of companies that are kind of on the brink here. And by the way, there is a newsletter that Bloomberg writes called The Brink. It comes out every Tuesday. Keep an eye out for it. But Amelia also writes the America's Distressed Watch uh, today. And you can subscribe to that as well. What are we looking forward to that is kind of, you know, teetering here? Yeah, you know, I think one theme that I've been tracking is that a lot of the companies that did kind of controversial debt deals last year or even 2020, 2021, um, liability management transactions, they're starting to find that, you know, whether it be litigation or just taking on too much debt in the era of easy money is kind of like having a reckoning right now. So I think that other companies that have these sorts of um, transactions under their belt, Encora is one, for instance. Um, So that's been what we've been looking for next. Certainly something we're going to be keeping an eye on. Amelia Pollard of our credit team, we thank you as always, of course, alongside Mahesh Bimalingam, Chief European Credit Strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Stiefel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. There's been such a volume of news in the EM world uh, today. You have Argentina, you have Turkey, you have Thailand, you have South Africa. They're all moving. Their currencies are moving in a really big way. But I think the highlight out of all of them is Turkey. And mm-hmm. and I think there's, I mean, a presidential election going on there, uh, challenging a ruler, uh, or excuse me, a, a president who has been there for almost two decades now, I think, uh, and winning at the at the moment by a really tiny margin. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how that all plays out into these markets here. Uh, Nick Stadmiller, am I saying that right? Stop Miller. Stop. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna call you Nick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that works. Yeah, it does. Uh, head of global product over at Medley Advisors. Talk to us about why this is such a significant election. Just give our international audience some context here. Sure. Well, as you said, uh, President Erdogan's uh, AKP party has been in power for almost uh, just uh, two decades right now, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, frankly, Erdogan just wins election after election. Sometimes they're a bit close, but he's uh, been able to consolidate power. He transformed the country into a presidentialist system, giving him as the president considerably more power uh, under their previous uh, parliamentary system. And this is the first time that the opposition was really able to put on a united front. So six of the major opposition parties uh, came together to form a coalition and they got the tacit uh, participation of the pro-Kurdish HDP party uh, to bring this united push. And several of the polls as recently as last week were showing that the opposition candidate Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu could win and maybe even get the 50% uh, to win in the first round. So Erdogan really uh, beat expectations of a lot of uh, commentators. But at the end of the day, the expectation, I mean, the, the the margin with which he's winning at the moment is is still quite slim. And I think the slimmest it's been in, well, since he started uh, kind of being president at, at the end of the day. Where's that coming from, though? Where are the concerns? How much of this is a reflection of uh, the government relief post-earthquake as opposed to simply a demographic change? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. One is Erdogan's insistent on, insistence on unorthodox economic policies. He has this uh, belief that inflation is caused by interest rates rather than interest rates being the cure for yeah. higher inflation. Uh, they, they've spent a lot of money. There have been a lot of allegations of misspending and corruption over the years uh, as Erdogan and his inner circle have accumulated power. Uh, There was also a lot of criticism of the government's handling of the earthquake uh, in terms of disaster relief and getting to affected citizens quickly. So given all that macro backdrop, and in most countries, when the economy performs poorly and you have rampant inflation and a plummeting currency, that's usually very bad for the incumbent. So I think the fact that Erdogan was actually able to, to best his opponent, even if he came up short of that 50, and even if it was pretty close, about four and a half percent, I think that shows uh, Erdogan's mastery as a politician in Turkey and his understanding of how to energize his base. So now the market read through. You know, we were talking just at the beginning of the segment about how Turkey's not the only emerging market here where there are a lot of things to watch. So how do you think about what's happening in Turkey and what it means for financial assets? Sure. Well, unfortunately, Turkey has become almost uninvestable for a lot of uh, international hedge funds and asset managers because the currency is very heavily controlled. Uh, It's not very liquid. uh, And because of various measures they have that suppress uh, bond yields in the domestic market, uh, that's not interesting. So the only market really where foreigners are heavily participating still is in the hard currency bond market. And I think if there is a spillover from what's going on in Turkey into the rest of the the emerging market complex, it'll be there. Uh, there are about 65 or $70 billion of uh, foreign uh, holdings of these hard currency bonds. 
if Erdogan keeps his economic policies of currency intervention, depleting the central bank's FX reserves, there's a real risk that they could have a currency or a balance of payments crisis in the next year because it's just not sustainable. How deep is that spillover? Is it just for Turkish assets or does it spill over meaningfully into other emerging market assets? Well, when you take the global context right now, which is high interest rates globally, uh, you know, signs of uh, tightening credit conditions in the U.S. and Europe, and then you add a, a large emerging market uh, potentially, you know, defaulting or at least getting into serious distress conditions, it, it could have a, a serious effect because when you have a one-off event like that, uh, emerging markets asset managers, you know, the big asset managers and players tend to de-risk their portfolios a bit which tightens credit conditions for all these other emerging markets. When you have this period of high interest rates in the US, uh, US dollar already, that can start to reverberate. I don't think it's enough to create a global EM crisis, but it could certainly exacerbate some already existing tensions there. Well, speaking of a global EM crisis, one of the, I remember, key takeaways in last year's spring meetings was, the IMF spring meetings, was from uh, Kristalina Gorgeva, and she had specifically said, look, in terms of a credit crunch, and this is before the banking turmoil and the Fed tightening of it all, uh, one of the things she was concerned about was some sort of sovereign debt crisis, not in the developed world, but in the EM world, specifically as a function of kind of monetary policy, but also uh, the massive volatility you saw in commodities off the back of the war in Ukraine. To what extent is Turkey kind of a microcosm of that story? The idea here that monetary policy and commodities as Turkey is uh, crucial to the grain deal story, how much of that is idiosyncratic to Turkey as opposed to more of a function of the broader EM story? Well, the short answer is a little bit of both. Uh, on the one hand, most of the large EMs, the Brazils, the Mexicos, and the South Africas, have got away from what's called the original sin of emerging markets debt, which is when you continually borrow in hard currency because it's a lower interest rate usually. Uh, so you save on your interest rate bill, but then you're subject to your currency risk. Yeah. Uh, Turkey, because it's suppressed uh, lira uh, interest rates and bond yields, really all the foreign funding they get has to come pretty much in hard currency format, not in lira borrowing. But on the other hand, a big difference between Turkey and a lot of these other countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa that are having uh, extreme distress and debt, is that most of those countries are commodities exporters, either copper, some sort of metal or oil, whereas Turkey is actually on the opposite side of that trade. So you know, as commodity prices go down, the commodity price, uh, producers get squeezed and tend to have debt problems. Turkey is a major oil and gas importer, so it's actually the surge in oil and gas prices that we saw last year that's contributing to their very heavy current account deficit. Speaking of, I, I think that this is kind of an underappreciated look at markets here. We talk about currencies kind of as um, an absolute. We look at where they're going, how they're trading. But you brought up something else that people seem to be watching a lot more closely than in the past, which is trade flows. How, how much are you actually watching that relative to just kind of the general pricing of commodities when, it, when you're looking at the countries that they're exposed to? You mean in Turkey, Turkey specifically or just Turkey more generally? And more, more broadly at this point. Yeah, well, uh, one of the interesting things that we see is, um, one, a lot of these emerging uh, market economies, particularly in, uh, in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa, are very heavily dependent on uh, commodities prices. But then you have a lot of countries that are very uh, heavily dependent on export growth, uh, particularly in East Asia. So you have Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia. They're all manufacturing and exporting, uh, particularly on semiconductors. And as we see growth in the U.S. slowing down, that's really uh, starting to affect them. Mexico is another one where the bulk of their export engine is manufacturing and export into the U.S., so the old saying, when the U.S. Uh, sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, uh, that can be true even for the emerging markets that are not dependent on commodities, but are still dependent on U.S. and developed market demand. Yeah. Nick Schottmiller, head of global product um, over at Medley Advisors. We thank you as always. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. This news out of Activision and Microsoft now getting EU approval, 
the irony, I think, is is so telling here is that on the one hand, when the UK rejected this deal, they said it was because of kind of obviously competitive reasons around the cloud gaming space. The EU is saying, well, actually, this solves a lot of the issues in the cloud gaming space. So two different takes, two different regulatory bodies. I am excited to see what our next guest has to say about this. But before her uh, weigh in about the deal itself, it also sets some really interesting tones on how the UK versus EU deals with corporations, business yeah. policy, large-scale mergers. And isn't wasn't this the big issue anyway, the idea of that European tech regulation was kind of the biggest risk for tech when uh, you know President Trump and President Biden, both who have been very hard on tech, haven't exactly um, had been as, as severe as, as their counterparts um, across the Atlantic. Let's get a little bit more uh, information this time from a true expert. Shali and I are over here just giving our opinions, but I guarantee you uh, our next guest uh, really knows what she's talking about. Jennifer Ree, our senior litigation analyst um, for antitrust over at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Jen, thank you as always for joining. Your thoughts on this development? Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think actually it's not very surprising because I think the EU, the commission actually has been dropping hints for a while that they may view this deal different from uh, the UK and the US. Um, and, you know, I think the thing is here, we're, you were talking about cloud gaming and the future of cloud gaming, and, and there were differences in opinion between the UK and US and the European Commission on what that future is and, and how quickly it's going to come about. And I think that it just shows that th these merger decisions are difficult because they are predictive. And in particular, they're predictive when you're talking about, you know, technology and uh, markets that move really quickly and, and kind of morph and change very, very quickly in ways that nobody that's that are difficult to predict. And I think it's perhaps not surprising that two different regulators sort of looked at the same information and came out a bit differently on that. Um, and it's really all about that, you know, where you think cloud gaming is going to go and whether you think Microsoft owning Activision's content is going to be able to dominate that market and push out other potential cloud providers. Um, and, and the two commissions just saw it differently. I have a bit of a dumb question here. Given the size <laughs> of activism, it's, uh, Activision itself, why does it matter basically if, if activision is part of microsoft or standalone given how large activision has been in the gaming industry you would think that you would just kind of be worried about activision's competitive dynamic as a standalone company you know it's a really good question um and the issue is that the, the way the markets were defined at least by the u.s regulator and generally by the uk is sort of more narrowly they were looking at specific activision games and games by other companies that create content that they call triple a so it's really big budget games a lot of money and resources are put into them they're expected to be very popular like call of duty and when you narrow the market that way it makes activision more important in the gaming content market than it otherwise would be if you look across the spectrum of all potential games that could be played on a device. And and they sort of saw Call of Duty as, as must-have content. And so the issue is that if Microsoft has this must-have content in its hands, because it's also very strong in distribution, whether that's through console or whether it's through the cloud um, or, or a cloud subscription service, that it would have this ability because pe people want Call of Duty and will switch over to Microsoft, that it has this ability to block out other potential cloud rivals, the ones that exist today and the ones that might be up and coming. And that's what the U.S. and the U.K. agencies are trying to prevent. So, so it really has more to do with Microsoft's strength in the cloud. So when you look at the difference in how the EU versus UK is handling this issue, what does this mean for the deal itself? You know, I actually think it really is only to the extent it might be helpful, it's it's slight, it's incremental because they still, the companies still have a really high standard they're gonna have to meet in their appeal which as far as I can tell is still, they're still going forward with it um, in the UK to for that decision. I'll talk about the US in a second, because it really, they have to prove that what the regulator did is completely and totally irrational. Not just that maybe it's bad judgment or somebody else would look at the same facts and, and think differently, but that it's just way out of whack. Um, has no rationality at all. And that's a really high standard to meet. And while the European Commission's decision might be a factor that's that's considered in that 
it, it still is a really high standard to meet where you're doing something that's predictive and reasonable minds could differ uh, because it is predictive and no one has a crystal ball. I, I think in the US, the companies actually have a pretty good shot at prevailing in court. The standard is lower. It's a little bit easier to overturn a Federal Trade Commission decision um, in the US than it is to, to overturn a CMA decision in the UK. And I think the companies have a good shot there. So it really is all about the UK here in, in terms of the success of the deal. What could change with the UK, though? I mean, what does this kind of timeline look like? And does this at all have any bearing on how the US legal system approaches this deal? So in the UK, the timing's still unclear. Um, the, there was a, actually a hearing um, last Friday in a private lawsuit trying to block this deal. That, that happens once in a while. They're not particularly impactful. I, I don't expect that to have any impact here. Um, but the lawyers for Microsoft were asked about timing and they said, look, we're working really hard right now with the UK to come up with an, a, a date to argue the appeal. Um, and we don't really know what the timeline looks like yet. So, so that's kind of still an unknown. I do understand though, it can take a lot of time because a, an appellate tribunal can say, well, we don't agree, but instead of reversing the decision or coming out with their own decision, they can turn it back to the CMA. And if they turn it back to the CMA, uh, then it kind of starts things over. So it could take some time. Uh, in the US right now, they are slated to go to trial August 2nd. I think the timing there would probably be, uh, we should expect a decision in the first quarter of 2024. And, I, and as I said, I do think the companies have a pretty good shot at prevailing. Um, and that's that's before an administrative law judge. Now, the FTC can um, appeal that and the immediate appeal from the administrative law judge is to the commissioners themselves who voted to sue the deal. So the commissioners could then reverse the ALJ if the ALJ comes out in favor of the companies. And at that point, the companies would have the option of appealing to the federal courts. But, you know, we, we are talking about a pretty long timeline here, well into 2024. Certainly something we're going to keep an eye on and come back to you, Jennifer Reed, for your analysis. We thank you, as always, senior litigation analyst uh, and over antitrust over at Bloomberg Intelligence. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Today has been a really exciting day for the markets, maybe not on the macro front, but on the micro front for sure, because, Jen, it is merger Monday. You are starting to see some of those deals come out, specifically in uh, the commodity space, $38 billion worth, both about $19 billion each. Uh, we've got One Oak acquiring Magellan Midstream Partners, which are not exactly household names, but it's a really big deal uh, for a commodities nerd like me who really keeps an eye on those pipelines. Look, this is these are the pipelines. These are two companies that make pipelines that uh, transport natural gas. And in the, war, in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine, uh, the U.S. is exporting a lot of natural gas to the likes of Europe, to Asia, etc. Um, so this is a really interesting combo because it would now make them compete with kind of the big guys in, in natural gas. The other one, Newmont, uh, a gold name, acquiring uh, Newcrest Mining, again, another $19 billion deal. So lots of action. 
Lots of action, and we have lots of questions for the guests that are coming up. Oh, a ton. And we actually uh, have a perfect, perfect roundtable here to, to join. Uh, let's start with Bloomberg Intelligence's equity research analyst, Talon Custer. He's joining us to talk about the One Oak deal. And, you know, we're going to merge into that story. Uh, Jacob Loring, North American mining reporter for Bloomberg News as well. Look, these are two of our finest. They're going to talk to us about this commodity space. Talon, I want to start with you on this One Oak deal. I don't particularly follow the pipeline space often. But when I read the reporting on this, that this was going to help them compete with the likes of Williams or Kinder Morgan, it really piqued my interest. How big of a deal is this? Put this into perspective for our audience. It is a big deal. It was, it was surprising. I don't know if it, it in terms of, um, you know, scope and scale, it, it makes them bigger. But in terms of natural gas, it doesn't really do that because One Oak focused on natural gas and NGLs. Magellan focuses on crude oil and refined products, um, you know, like diesel and, and gasoline. So it wasn't, it's, it's an odd fit. Uh, I caught me off guard. I, I thought, you know, One Oak could be in the business to make an acquisition, but I was thinking more um, a gas or NGL asset uh, primarily focused in, in Texas or Oklahoma. But I guess is this, forgive my ignorance here, but is this basically at the bottom of it, an electrification play? So we've got that's the move that the world is sort of heading towards. And so it makes a lot of sense for anyone who's got pipes doing anything to kind of join forces. Um, I don't necessarily think it's, it's that an electrification play. I think that, you know, it can help them, um, you know, it gives them another avenue, um, maybe getting into renewable diesel, renewable uh, natural, uh, renewable gasoline, uh, sustainable jet fuel, things like that. Um, it, it can help them. It provides more infrastructure and assets to maybe move in that direction. But I don't think that's that's what this is. I, I think, um, you know, One Oak is focused in, in the Bakken, which is a, a, a mature play. It, it's not as prolific as the Permian. For example, it's it's further away from hubs. So, you know, they were looking at, at you know, a, a low growth in, in the longer term. And Magellan itself was looking at, at longer term, given the business that they're in. Um, but because of the, the regulatory backdrop, um, you know, we've seen acquisitions over the past couple of years. This is a way to, to grow, um, you know, inorganically. All right, Jacob, uh, your turn to shine here. Let's talk about this other deal, $19 billion, Newmont uh, acquiring Newcrest. This is a really big deal. The last time I think there was a, a acquisition of this kind was back in 2019 when Newmont took over Goldcore. What's the appeal here? What does Newcrest have that Newmont wants? Well, it, it, I mean, it, it fronts as a gold deal, but it, if you sort of read between the lines, it's, there's part of it that also reads like a copper deal. Newcrest has access to a whole bunch of copper, which obviously is very highly coveted right now. There's a looming shortage of copper and you know, as the world tries to sort of, you know, transition to a more, to a, a greener edge, um, you know, there's more demand, especially amongst mining companies for copper. And so we're starting to see some gold companies kind of make a bit of a foray into that area. Uh, and that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, there's several reasons that Newmont has outlined for this deal. But one of the big ones that sort of strikes me is the fact that Newcrest, amongst the gold miners, has a fair amount of copper. Uh, and mines in fairly early stages of their life. And I think Newmont's making a bit of a play here to say, you know, we're not just a gold company. We're also, you know, trying to be part of a, uh, you know, a bit of a, a fossil fuel transition. And um, so we're, you know, we're looking for copper too. But I guess Newmont is nevertheless a gold company. And I wonder what your take is on the prospects for regulatory approval of this, because you've got a gold joint that's going to get even bigger. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think for them, it seems like it should be fairly straightforward. Generally, it seems these, these gold deals go through, and there, it, it's not clear that there's sort of anyone else who's going to try to make a move for it. I mean, it, it'll take some time. They said they expect that the deal will close by uh, by the fourth quarter of this year. So and they, they have to get regulatory approval, I think, in Australia, Canada, Papua New Guinea, possibly another place. Um, so it, it takes a bit of work, but there's, there's nothing to suggest at this point that there's, you know, there's something that's going to, you know, get in its way. 
So Talon, let's, let's uh, bring you back in here and talk just about kind of the, the 60,000 foot view. When I think M&A, I think that, look, this is either a good, like an expansionary thing. It usually happens at the beginning of expansionary cycles because a lot of people are sitting on either cash or, or um, looking to kind of uh, invest further, or it is a recessionary take in that, you know, these companies are squeezed for cash and they need to consolidate. Which one is this? Uh, it, you know, it might be a mix of both. Um, you know, what I was getting at earlier is that with midstream, it's, you know, it's interesting in that, um, you know, the, the regulatory backdrop is, is so challenging. It's tough to build infrastructure. It's tough for these companies to grow, to sanction new projects and, and expand their asset base. So one of the, the ways that they've been doing it is via acquisitions. Um, most of what we've seen is, uh, you know, bolt-on acquisitions, smaller ones to, you know, reinforce their, their strengths. Um, obviously, there's been a couple corporate, you know, larger corporate deals. Um, but this one um, was a surprise, I think, more of an outlier. I don't necessarily think we're going to see a wave of, of extremely large um, combinations like this. But I do expect to continue seeing M&A because it's just a, it's a solid strategy for some of these companies uh, to grow and, and cut costs. What do you think of the terms of this deal? Do you have a sense that there might be a bit of overpaying in this? I did, it, the, the premium was steep. There's, there's tax implications because of the, the MLP structure of, of Magellan and the way they negotiated. Um, I get the impression that they wanted to make sure that there was a big enough premium to, to cover that. But, you know, it was a 22% premium over what Magellan's unit price was trading at. So I, I think the premium was you know, the, the price was relatively steep. So uh, that is the story on, on the One Oak deal. Uh, Jacob, I want to give you our, our, the last word here. When you're looking at kind of metals coverage and, and the metals deals, the metal framework, what's interesting to me is the timing of, of this Newmont deal specifically. We covered One Oak uh, just with Talon. With the Newmont deal, it's happening with gold prices at near record highs. How do you square that? We're seeing there's there's more investor interest in gold right now for all the obvious economic reasons. At the same time, I uh, you know Newmont has been looking at Newcrest for quite a while. Uh, they I think they launched this deal in February, but Newcrest has always been sort of number one on their corporate development teams list as you know the, the companies they wanted to fold into their their end. We we had heard from our reporting that they they previously looked at companies like Kinross, but for a while this has been the top one on their wish list. And I mean, the, the catalyst really, you know, separate from the gold price is the fact that, you know, last November, December-ish, the CEO of, of Newcrest resigned somewhat unexpectedly. Uh, and Newmont finally saw this opening to sort of swoop in. And they figured that, you know, for, for in that sense, you know, it was the right time. So, you know, then we saw changes with the gold price and then which adds sort of an interesting sort of wrinkle to this. But, you know, that said, I, I think it's actually pretty unrelated. Well, Jacob Lorink of Bloomberg News and Talon Custer, equity research analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence, we thank you as always. Of course, as we speak, we're looking at the One Oak uh, share price down about 9%, uh, pretty natural arbitrage that you see with any kind of acquirer and, and deal. We'll see how the investors respond to it when we start to get more information from those shareholders. And of course, um, we are looking at Newmont as well. NEM is the ticker there. Those shares higher by 1.5%. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jennifer, I don't know if you know this, Bailey uh, and I used to sit next to each other back on the stocks team, back in, the, back in our intern, my intern days, Bailey was a full-fledged adult, but like, Oh, back good in the, times. Good it really times. was. Yeah, I, I've been very lucky uh, with with my with my desk neighbors at, at Bloomberg. They've they've treated me uh, treated me well. So for that, I'm going to trade one desk neighbor to another. Bailey Lipschultz, we thank you as always for your markets reports. And like I said, as promised, my second desk neighbor, John Authors, uh, the star of Bloomberg Opinion. Every once in a while, he graces us with his presence. Thank you. I, I haven't I'm seen a, you in ages. Thank you. No, it's the same. This really isn't good enough, is it? I, I, I <laughs> need to introduce myself as a geriatric Gen Xer who catches up with TikTok when his kids show them 
their TikToks. Uh, you know what? That's at least another. Staying, that's another stage on the evolutionary. Uh, at least you're staying cycle. up to date in some way, right? I mean, some people don't even know what TikTok is. I mean, I depend on my niece for all of these things. There you go. You got to get your information where you can. And the, and the Chinese government depends on TikTok to know what my kids are getting up to with their social plans. There's probably somebody there who knows more about their hopes of dating or whatever than I do. Well, actually, there's probably quite a lot of people who know more about their dating aspirations than I do. Anyway, <laughs> this is probably not what you wanted to talk say, to me about. I was going to say, that's not. But you know what? <coughs> Always excited to hear your thoughts yes. on that subject. Yes. Uh, but I do yes. want to hear about the debt ceiling first, though, because, yes. look, we've been talking about this for what? It's been going mm. on for like a month now, mm. and it feels like we are kind of getting closer and closer to this X date in early June. And yet, here we are with the markets not doing a whole lot. First, it was, you know, let's panic, let's buy defensives, let's hop into mm. the dollar and treasuries and all that jazz. What happened? It's, it's very difficult to tell. If you look at the markets that are absolutely most directly affected, they have actually been more affected than in previous debt ceiling incidents. So if you look at um, T-bills that come due before and after when people currently expect the X date to be, the gap between them is very wide indeed now, and to an extent that we didn't see during the first really big fight over this, which is 2011. Um, I think a lot of people have simply done the game theory and said, this is a chicken game. Uh, somebody always swerves. We're not actually going to get a default. Uh, I think they're probably, well, I, I would bet a lot that, that that's ultimately correct. Um, but it's very strange that the stock market has been impacted as little as it has, given the, the fact that those who are most interested in this do care. Uh, and given the political risks, I think particularly after President Trump in the CNN town hall last week basically not only did he sort of give House Republicans permission to press ahead, he almost made it politically difficult for them not to. Yeah. Um, and that really does mean that the chances of brinkmanship going too far on a political level certainly look stronger now than they did even in 2011. This is, this is not the Tea Party. This is something different. I mean, would you take this as almost a litmus test of Trump's influence <laughs> in the Congress? Uh, I, I, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yes, I think it probably is at this point because he's made his uh, position as clear as he can. Whereas on abortion, one wouldn't be so clear. Um, given he's got very good, very strong feral political instincts, it surprises me a little that he's as confident that Republicans can avoid political blame for a default, given that they, you know with the previous it goes back to Newt Gingrich and trying to shut down the governments against Clinton. I mean, every time some variation on this theme has happened, the Republicans have lost politically, without exception. Um, uh, so it surprises me he's as confident as he is that this is a winning issue for the Republicans. Um, while obviously being nervous that the, the balance on abortion has now switched quite dangerously away from the Republicans. I don't really... We now know that he's got much better political judgment, political antennae than I have, or the most of us have, but that's, that's a surprising judgment. I do not think the Republicans want to go to the country after a default. It's this, just not good. This idea of a default, though, I mean, look, even if we do get an agreement, at the end mm. of the day, still, from what I understand, kicking the can down the road to just March of next year, uh, I yes. think the deputy director of the National Economic Council had said, look, this is not a long-term solution. John, what does a long-term solution look like? I think a long-term solution would involve two things. One is actually doing away with the debt limit in some way. This is not the way it was meant to work. Um, the arguments being made about the Fourteenth Amendment that you know that you can't the, the, the nation cannot renege on debts that it's uh, taken out do seem to me to there is at least a sensible case that the debt ceiling runs counter to that. So you need to come up with some grand settlements to do away with that, and then I think um, again delving back into into uh, political and financial history in the nineteen eighties you had the Graham Rudman. Uh, automatic budget stabilizers which didn't last all that long and weren't necessarily terribly 
effective. But the idea that uh, once a budget, once uh, the deficit goes beyond a certain level, a certain degree of cuts becomes mandatory, uh, and you tie the hands of uh, the, the negotiators on either side. Some variation on that probably is needed, um, and you know, depending on exactly how the mechanics of it work out, that that might be a workable way. Um, you just need to look at what's been happening in France in the last few weeks. You know, attacking entitlements, which means paying people less in their pension than they have saved up for and been told they're going to get, is not something you want to do. But I guess I take your point on what needs to happen in order mm. for us to get out of this sort of endless can-kicking situation. Yeah. But that will require, in my assessment, an enormous amount of bipartisan political will. Which doesn't exist. Which does not exist. Mm. So we have lots of cans ahead of us down yes. many roads for many years to come. Yeah, and Graham Rudman was indeed often referred to as Graham Rudman Hollings because they, the two Republican senators did have a Democratic senator, Fritz Hollings, to go along with them. Yes, and the idea of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a Cruz Hawley, I don't know, which Democratic senator can you imagine putting their name onto on something with those two? I, I, it, it, it is a little hard to imagine. <laughs> the mind boggles. What does yes. a contingency plan look like, John? What what happens if we hit that debt ceiling? What is kind of the uh, doomsday scenario? Well, the doomsday scenario is that we really do default. Um, and if that happens, then things get very interesting indeed in global, in global markets because... Um, arguably one of the greatest issues of the last 15 20 years has been the lack the the, the reducing supply of risk-free assets okay no asset is truly risk-free mm -hmm. but for the purposes of financial arguments financial calculations some are you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are no longer in there peripheral Europe eurozone debt is no longer in there there are barely any AAA corporates anymore yeah um even if you manage to resolve it fairly quickly, the the shock, the crisis level shock of a default, followed by the adjustment that would be required now that everybody knows that not even treasuries are risk free. Um, I I do not know exactly what would happen. What I do know is that I don't want to find out. Fair, uh, a, a doomsday scenario for sure. Is the saving grace in all of this mm. the dollar? It could be. Oh my gosh, John Authors in the dollar. Uh, do, <laughs> Don't do, get do, him well, started. Well, and the, <laughs> and the dollar smile. Yes, this is this is. Uh, <laughs> Christine learned an awful lot about the Bretton Woods uh, agreement during her uh, those ye long years she spent having to sit next to <laughs> next to me at the desk. It's true. Some people uh, are are told, you know, fun stories about their families or whatever. John Authors told me about Bretton Woods and yes, how that came and to John, be. And John Maynard Keynes. Um, <laughs> so it's possible as it stands at the moment what happened in 2011 was one of the great counterintuitive market responses of all time which was in response to the the um, debt ceiling having been as problematic as it was you know the, for a few hours they didn't manage to in the middle of the night they didn't manage to raise the the ceiling and so on um, people were terrified and they ran for the shelter of treasuries um, and you seem conceivably to be having something similar at the moment that people that the dollar has actually ticked up again quite noticeably in the last week or two nothing you could hang your hat on too much just yet but it's possible that people will still even if the source of the problem is the US regard the US and the dollar as their as their shelter well, uh, certainly a bid that has been coming through in the last few weeks. 1228 on the Bloomberg Dollar Index, 102 on DXY, folks. Uh, we are going to be covering that head to toe. John Authors over at Bloomberg Opinion, we thank you as always. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Let's bring in uh, a true expert, Jennifer Lee, Managing Director and Senior Economist over at BMO Capital Markets and uh, a true friend to the show. Jennifer, uh, the same concept, uh, your thoughts on the same concept here, but let's connect the dots. To what extent is this debt ceiling debate and the changes being made to address it inflationary? Um, well, hi there. Thank you very much for having me on the show today. Um, you know what? It, I don't. I have to question. You know, how much more spending do we need? Um, you know, and, and just hearing your previous guest, was kind of you know his comments on the debt ceiling and what could happen if they do default. You know, it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. Um, you know, and, and 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 truly, I mean, we already have a strong, still moving, uh, an economy that's still growing, um, inflation that's already inflationary. So you know, we need to start tailoring back. Um, all of this, all of this spending right now um, um, before it's it's too late. Um, so that's I, I think that those are the two the, the two the points here. I mean, it's not as if we are uh, struggling with very low inflation and we need to you know to spice things up a little bit. Things are already quite spiced up enough, and I think we need to start, start tailoring back that spending. I guess if you're a central banker, though, you're in such a tight situation because on the one hand, you've got this persistent inflation pressure, but you've got some cracks in the labor market and the economic slowdown. I mean, how can a central bank manage this without having to make a move in rates? I guess with, with kid gloves, really. I mean, like I think at the end of the day, we have to hopefully assume that um, that someone's going to pull back and that cooler heads will prevail and you know we won't see the U.S. default. But in the meantime, you know, um, central bankers, you know, global, not only for the Fed, but around the world, everyone has to sort of keep their eye on that inflationary ball. And that's what everyone's doing these days. Um, you know, we're all getting back towards that, or most countries are heading back toward that 2% target, some faster than others. But, you know, so everyone is sort of employing different ways of getting getting to that point. Uh, you know, over the past few weeks, we've had, you know, the Federal Reserve hinting at a pause, not exactly coming out and saying that they're that they're done, but certainly hinting at it. The Bank of Canada has paused for a couple months in a row. The RBA teased with one pause and went back uh, raising rates again. ECB is still going whole hog on the, on the rate hike front, and uh, so is the Bank of England. And that's because they need to bring inflation back down to 2%. You know, come, uh, sorry to say this, but come hell or high water, they've got, they've got, to do, they've got a job to do, and this is what they're trying to do. Is the difference in, between Europe and the U.S. one of concern about high inflation rates getting entrenched with higher wage bargaining deals? Yes, for sure. So that's, uh, you know, we're not seeing as much of a wage price spiral here in the U.S., but in Europe, you know, there is that potential for some, even though the central bankers have said that that's, they're not seeing too much of it. But we see that with in terms of like the strikes. I mean, we already know that the labor market is super tight and the workers know that. And, you know, some of them have gone for years without, you know, a new contract. So this is the prime opportunity to, you know, to make their voices heard and to get what they want. And we're starting to see the strikes, uh, you know, playing out across uh, across much of Europe. And now with the summer approaching, tourist season, you know, you don't want you don't want the to see all the strikes happening again at the uh, at the airports like we did last year. So um, that is, you know, that's part of the the, the whole um, narrative as well. When you're comparing the likes of the U.S. versus, say, the ECB or um, even the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, et cetera, it feels like whereas the U.S. is approaching the end of their tightening cycle, the ECB and definitely the BOE say, look, we still have a little bit more work to do. To what extent is those or are those diverging paths? I'm trying to find the right grammar here. Are those diverging <laughs> paths uh, a problem? A problem in terms of maybe for for the currency, I guess, if the uh, if the ECB continues to to raise rates and so is the Bank of England, that could lift or strengthen their currency somewhat, and also that would also help inflation. That would help the inflation story. But the Bank of England is is certainly one with you know quite you know uh, quite a problem right now because they still have you know over ten percent um, headline inflation, which, and they barely started turning the corner, even with energy prices down, whereas everyone else has has turned the corner and is heading back south again. Um, the ECB is still facing record high, um, record high or, or close to record high core CPI, and every single, almost every single central banker or, or governing council member has been even more hawkish than the other. It seems you know some we we have been piercing in um, a June hike and a uh, July hike, and a couple of them have started hinting at a September hike, which is like so far um, in in the, in the yonder. I think it's too early to talk about that, but they, it shows sort of like that mindset that they are ready to do what it takes and willing to do what it takes to get inflation back down to two percent. I guess one thing I wonder though is I mean I, I'm interested in this idea you have about September being so far away because 
you know, we're seeing signs of inflation pressure easing, but that could reverse very easily. And one thing I'm really looking at is food inflation, because we're wondering what's going to be happening with, for example, the grain shipment agreements coming out of Ukraine. That's a source potentially of enormous pressure on food price inflation. And then, you know, to be sure, central bankers will tell you food prices are transitory, but it makes for a pretty nasty headline number at some points. And it's going to be quite hard for a central bank to be easing if that's what they're seeing as a transitory high inflation rate. Oh, for sure. I mean, like the Bank of England just last week, they were talking about food prices. Um, um, they soared, you know, over 19% year over year. Um, and that's interesting because of the fact that the UK imports about half of its food. But this is the thing that that's the actual component that the bank was talking about, because they said that it takes up so much of, you know, of it's such a, a of a salient point of a consumer of the consumer spending basket that it does help shape their inflation expectations. So even though food prices, you know, are super volatile, and that's why we take food and energy out of the headline and get the core measure, it still plays a big role in how consumers inf- um, um, think about inflation going forward. And, and, and that's, you know, I think there was another ECB survey as well last week that showed inflation expectations climbing for the next, uh, th- over the next three years. So all this, you know, even though energy prices have come down, which, you know, we are all thankful for, food prices is still very much of a volatile component. And we could see um, some sharp upward pressure from those from that key component in coming months. And I would argue shelter uh, to some extent as well. That kind of bubble that I think a lot of people expected to pop by now hasn't, um, even though we are about a year, uh, a year and some after the Fed has started their tightening cycle. Jennifer, are you at all worried about some sort of double peak in inflation? Maybe not now, but one or two years from now? Um, you know, I haven't thought of a, a double peak, but now that I think about it, no, not not quite yet. Maybe not hitting those same highs that we saw last summer. But, you know, we are still, I mean, house, housing prices have come down and it takes some time before they actually show up in the um, in the in the big you know CPI components, and that's why the the Fed you know in, in is making this a lot more complicated, especially for me because I'm losing track of all the different components. But you know back in the day we will look at just total, we will look at core when you strip out um, X food and energy, and now we're stripping it down between like goods and services, and within services you're stripping it down, you're taking out housing, and now you're looking at that super core measure. So you know this shows how. It's it's not just the headline, it's not just the core measure, but the Fed is looking at almost every single component to make sure it's coming back down to where it wants to be before it starts it starts talking about cutting rates or at least stopping at least it's gonna stop pulling back on that or pushing the whole hawkish um, narrative. And it's interesting when you compare that to what you're seeing uh, around the world, because maybe maybe not a fear in the U.S., but certainly an uptick that you've seen, at least in the core data and uh, in, in, say, Spanish data or French data uh, as well. Jennifer Lee, uh, Senior Economist Managing Director over at BMO Capital Markets, we thank you as always for your time and your insight. Uh, Jennifer Ryan, uh, my, my co-host here, there's a lot of scary things out there. I mean, today's conversation has been very doomsday. It's been very doomsday amidst a flat market. I know. <laughs> I know. We're financial journalists. Uh, spare us. Um, this is what we were, were hired to do. Uh, inflict fear in the hearts of uh, our, our listeners. Um, just kidding. Look, the, the market seems to be to uphold um, or hold fair, fairly well, even in the face of, of a lot of these. And I think that speaks to the strength of these markets, the strength of the American consumer. So there is a bull argument to be made here, um, but certainly something that we're going to keep an eye on as, as things develop. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Our next guest is here to talk about artificial intelligence. Jan Slaji, the founder of Toggle AI. And Toggle AI uses generative AI, which is the hot, hot thing these days, to provide hedge fund style analytics that predicts price movements and 35,000 securities. Did I get that right? You did, yes. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit more about Toggle AI. Why should we use it? So Toggle AI was created with the specific purpose of helping investors at hedge funds, investment banks, institutional investors at large to just get better insights from their data. And so we felt like as a background in hedge fund investing ourselves that we really lack the infrastructure to make that more efficient. There's a lot of data available, but really not enough tools to help you get the value from it that exists and is locked in there. So you've been using generative AI for years, but 
how does your tech compare to the secret sauce in the new tech that's captured the public imagination since we all learned about ChatGBT last year? Yeah, great question. So I would say the most important step forward from our point of view as a kind of intelligent financial analytics platform is the fact that these large language models have for the first time enabled two-way communication. So prior to that, our reliance on language models was primarily to articulate the analysis that the AI would have done across all of these different assets. What you're now able to do is ask follow-up questions. So if I highlight an interesting relationship for you, what you're then able to do is say, okay, here's my question that would like to dig a little bit deeper. That's now possible. I guess one question I have for you though, I have many questions, but this is the first question I'm gonna hit you with. The one thing that we see across every company that reports earnings that we follow is everyone's got something to say about AI. Everyone's falling over themselves to figure out a way to use it. So you market yourselves as giving traders and hedge funds an opportunity, a leg up. But if everyone starts using AI, isn't everyone going to start having the same advantage? Yeah, again, one you you went right to the to the heart of the matter. I would say the the large language models here are really used mostly as an intermediary between the user and then the analytics that this that the models help you use so not everybody will have access to the same analytics in other words the answers and the analysis that you get through toggle ai are reliant on a whole suite of analytics that we have spent a lot large number of years developing and so just having access to chat gpt isn't enough to now create a competitor to toggle. But you bring up ChatGPT, and then it is unfortunately famously productive of some very curious answers. It will tell a user that he is in love with you, um, or tell a user, um, you know, some very strange answers that suggest that the reliability issue still needs quite a bit of work to be sorted out. And do you face the same difficulties with your own technology, or is that something different that you're using? So. The, the the question of hallucinations obviously looms very large in finance because getting the right answer is often extremely important and can involve quite a lot of money. And so people really want to make sure that what they're seeing is correct. The way we address this challenge is by having a much more narrowly specialized large language model that effectively is only able to get answers and source analysis from the tools that we have plugged into it and from the data that we have sourced and controlled. And so it is much less prone, in fact, in our case, almost never, to giving you the wrong answer like what you might see with ChatGPT. Interesting, so you spoke a little bit at the beginning about the types of clients that you've got. Are you looking to expand into different bank trading divisions, for example? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've we've this is we've been around for just around three years, so we're definitely still growing, growing very fast. I think what has happened with with ChatGPT and what has really helped us in that respect is that the interest in the technology and the interest in thinking through how it might impact an individual institution has absolutely exploded. And so, even if for no other reason than curiosity people will often take a meeting with us to say, okay, let's see what this can do. And I guess what hurdles are you encountering when dealing with potential new customers? And the thing I have in mind here is, you know, when ChatGPT came out, there was this great mania for people to find their use cases for it. And then it wasn't too long until we had banks saying, hang on a minute, I don't think this is something that I want to license to the rest of the company and there's, we're going to put some serious restrictions on using it. Yeah, so again, I would say that Compared, I think what ChatGPT has done has spawned a lot of interest in this technology and the ability to have communication with the machine. But I think if you are a banking institution, what you're really looking at, and that's the use case that we rely on, is to leverage this technology as an improvement on the user experience. So you're not saying, oh, I'm going to use ChatGPT to help me in my day-to-day -day workflow you're using the underlying technology to say users who prior to that might have been reluctant to use an analytical tool because it involved drop-down menus and buttons and so on are now able to verbalize what they would like to get done and then the system takes that and powers the appropriate analytical widget and then gives you the answer. I think that dramatically lowers the bar to using 
data for your decisions that I think will have implications for sure in finance, but probably anywhere where data analytics is generally a big industry. Does your pitch to potential customers include the idea that you could potentially provide them with some inefficiencies, i.e. that they could replace some staff with your systems? We don't center the pitch around basically replacing the staff, but I think what we do generally highlight for them is that it can really turbocharge the workflow of the staff that they have. Giving you an example, a number of banking institutions, for example, will have quite a lot of data locked in um, written documents. So they produce a lot of research, that research gets stored in some kind of online repository, it becomes very difficult to find. Where la large language models can be very good is identifying those documents, getting the data for you, all in seconds, which other prior to that might have taken hours. So again, it's about making somebody a lot more productive, not necessarily replacing them. Jan Salaji, CEO and founder of Toggle AI. Uh, it's been using generative AI to provide hedge fund style analytics. It's kind of exciting to predict uh, price movements, 35,000 securities. But it's not just stocks, it's commodities, it's fixed income, it's all about it. Folks, check it out. Uh, Jan Salaji joining us right here in the Interactive Broker Studio. We thank you as always for your time. Uh, Jen, this is an area that has exploded and for it to kind of get into financial services is, is new. It is, it is new. I mean, there's, I'm not going to comment on the, the vast realms of technology that financial services companies use because sure. that would keep us here all day. But right. it's, <laughs> it's definitely a hot topic on earnings calls. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.